We are continuing this morning our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 this morning. If you don't have a Bible and you want to follow along with me with our Pew Bible, it can be found on page 960 in our Pew Bible. Um, And we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So let me just take a few minutes to review what we looked at last week because Paul builds on what he has already said. In verses 1 through 25 of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is addressing a problem in the church at Corinth. Namely, uh, believers in Corinth were guilty of using the gift of tongues without an interpreter present. And because they did that, no one knew what was being said. There wasn't clarity of speech, and people were left out of the worship service. They were being alienated from the worship service. So what Paul does is he makes a comparison between two gifts. The gift of prophecy, which in 1 Corinthians 14 is the clear, concise proclamation of God's word that is understandable to all, and the gift of tongues. And Paul's conclusion is that prophecy is much better than that of tongues. In fact, he says, I would rather speak five words of understanding than 10,000 words in an unknown language in order that the body would be built up. And last week, we saw four fundamental principles of congregational worship that Paul gave us out of this, uh, the opening passage in 1 Corinthians 14. I'll review them quickly. It won't be on the screen, but I'll review them quickly. The first principle he tells us as to why we gather is that of edification, that is to build up. We see it over and over again in 1 Corinthians 14. In verse number 5, he closes it out, and he tells us why prophecy is greater so that the church may be built up, he says. Then in verse uh, number 3, Paul speaks of the use of prophecy, he says, that the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding, for their edification. In verse 12, Paul says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And then in verse 17, he says, That you may be given thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. In other words, in that context, if someone is praying in an unknown language, they may be praying to God and people who can speak that language can hear them. But if you can't speak the language, you can't even say amen to their prayer or amen to their thanksgiving of God. And because you're left out because of the language barrier, then you are not being built up. So the first primary principle he gives us is that of edification. The church gathers together to build up one another. The second principle he gave us is that of participation in verses 6 through 12. That prophecy includes everyone. But if tongues are used, if someone speaks in a different language without an interpreter, then those who cannot speak that language is left out. They are left out. Uh, they, They don't know what's going on. Uh, And I'll not ask Sister Deb to quote another verse in Spanish this morning. She did well last week to prove my point, so I'll I'll let her off the hook this morning. But when she quoted John 3.16 in Spanish, 
Everybody here was left out if you didn't know what's, how to speak Spanish. Um, but participation, everyone's to be involved. Thirdly was the principle of information in verses 13 through 19. Uh, Paul says we should sing, we should pray with a fruitful mind. We should not lose our mind whenever we come to church, but our mind is very much involved. And then the principle of evangelization from verses 20 through 25. Paul says that if an unbeliever comes in your midst and everyone is speaking in a different language, then they're going to leave and they're going to say everybody's mad. In other words, they're crazy, all right? Uh, but if they come in and someone proclaims the gospel clearly to them, then he says they're convicted. They're called to account. The secrets of their heart are disclosed. And falling on their face, they will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Verses 1 through 25, Paul tells us why we gather. We gather this morning for the purpose of edification, for the purpose of participation for the purpose of information to learn and the purpose of evangelization to share the gospel with unbelievers but when you come to verse number 20 or 26 there is a change of focus from how from why we worship to how we worship from the reason we gather to what we should do when we gather and so verses 26 through 40 Paul's going to show us the way we should orderly and properly worship God. So let's begin in verse 26 and see if you can sense the dripping sarcasm of Paul in this passage. He begins, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one, of, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. Now, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything, that, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones who it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are, command, are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is the word of the Lord. You can describe God in many ways, but one way in which you can describe God, and it's undeniable, is that God is a God of order. Many of you started back in Genesis reading your through the Bible in a year Bible reading plan, 
And you don't get out of the first two chapters of the Bible before you realize that God, the creator, is a God of order. He works with precision, placing the stars and the sun and the moon exactly where they go, the planets in their orbit, and the earth, the correct distance from the sun, everything in its proper place where it belongs. And you see that in the created order. God does not just fling stuff out there and hope it just goes together. No, he is the architect and the designer of creation. He's a God of order. But not just with creation, but when you think of salvation, you also see that God is a very orderly God. Uh, The writer of Galatians put it this way, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them who were under the law. When the fullness of time was come. Jesus did not just happen to show up in world history at that time. But it was a a, a plan of God ordained before the foundation of the world and brought about with precision, so precise that God chose the handmaid who would pack him for nine months and give birth to him. So precise that God would choose the little city. So precise that God would even cause a pagan king or pagan ruler to uh, execute a tax so that Jesus would end up being born where the prophet said he would be born. Nothing was left to chance. God, a God of order. Now, doesn't it just make sense that the God creator of the world and God the redeemer of the world who does all things in order, when it comes to his redeemed people worshiping him, they should worship him in an orderly fashion? In this scene in the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, you see how God's people worshiped God at the tabernacle and at the temple. So particular was God that he even numbered the number of sockets that would go on the temple. Everything had to be precise. Everything had to be out of a particular metal. And then there was a particular order in which the priests would follow to offer up certain sacrifices. God gave the laws. Whenever you get the numbers in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and you get into the law and you read about how particular God is, he is saying to his people, you have to worship me on my terms. And here's the way you do it. And it's very orderly. But what about the New Testament? Well, Jesus had a conversation with a woman at the well in John 4. And there was much debate. Where do you really worship God at? Uh, The Jews say in Jerusalem. The Samaritans say at Sychar on the mountain. Where is it at? And you know what Jesus said to her? Jesus said the hour is coming and now is. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For God is spirit. And they who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now, let me say this. Sometimes you can be on both ends of that spectrum. I've been in churches where they are all spirit. What I mean by that is it is chaos. It is unorganized. It is confusing. And you, it, it, I mean, it, they're running around like rats on acid. And you're wondering what in the world is going on here. All right, They're, they're all fire. Then I've been into some all truth churches. And they're dead. They're dull. If the Holy Spirit's presence showed up, it would scare them to death. 
As one of my dear friends, Jimmy Burchett, said, they would not raise their hand in church if their armpits were on fire. I mean, they are dead. That's how dead they are. Yeah, but they're the all-truth crowd. What should we shoot for? Well, Jesus tells us what to shoot for. You don't shoot for being all spirit, all fire, or all, all truth and all knowledge. There is a delicate balance between the two. We should be a spiritual people, and we should be a, a, a people who love the truth of God. And when we come together, if we worship God in spirit and in truth, God is greatly honored in that. But how do we do that in a way that pleases him? Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians, this passage, is going to show us how. And let, before I get into the text, let me just give you some backdrop of what's going on in Corinth. We saw last week they were a confused bunch. I mean, they were doing what they thought was right, but it was just completely wrong. And uh, in their church service, it was, it was disorganized chaos. Um, you had several people speaking in tongues at the same time. And they were doing it without an interpreter, so nobody knew what in the world was going on. From our text, you get the idea that not only were the tongue speakers speaking all together at the same time in a disorderly manner, but also even prophets were doing the same thing. So in the middle of a worship service, you had four or five speaking in tongues. You had three or four prophets on the floor at the same time trying to preach and proclaim the word of God. And everybody's very confused as to what is going on. And then in the midst of that, you had women disrupting the service. Saying, hey, hey, preacher, what do you mean by that statement? Or, I don't agree with that. Can you explain that a little bit further to me? All of this is going on in the midst of a worship service. While somebody else is saying, I've got a song. And somebody else is saying, I've got a revelation. And somebody else is saying, I've got a word of knowledge. It's all going on in a worship service. And so what Paul is trying to do here is Paul is trying to rein them in. And, and, and I've learned this, whether, whether it's in sports, whether it's in pastoring a church, whether it's in a church service or what, it's a whole lot easier to restrain a fanatic than it is to raise a corpse. And, and what Paul is trying to do here is he's just trying to rein them in a little bit. They're on fire, but it's just not, uh, not honoring God the way they are worshiping him. And so now after he moves out of, okay, this is why you gather, he now shows us how we should conduct ourselves as to avoid chaos and confusion and something that's counterproductive. So what he does is he's going to give us three quick actions that we need to take in order to make sure that we are worshiping God properly. The first thing he tells us in verses uh, 26 through the latter part, or through the first part of verse 33 is this, that we should show restraint. There are times in a worship service that we should show restraint. Um, look in the first part of verse 26 and 27. Paul is going to show us here the purpose. He says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be for building up. Now, here he reminds us of this purpose. Well, first, I think we need to understand what our purpose is not. And our purpose is not personal demonstration. The idea was, everybody came to Corinth. They all had their hymns. They all had their lessons. They all had their revelation. They all had their tongue. They all had an interpretation. And they were doing it in a way that they were showing off. They were doing it in a way 
to where they were the center of attention. Now, if we know anything about the church of Corinth, we know this. They were eat up with pride. I mean, they, their body was eat up with the cancer of pride. And so now here you have members coming in, everybody shoulders thrown back and everybody boasting about what a revelation they got what a song they got what a tongue they got what an interpretation they got and Paul is reminding them listen folks it's not about your personal demonstration no worship is about congregational edification that's what it's about again he reminds us let all things be done for what building up he we are to build up one another as a congregation and that is the purpose so now we move from the purpose, and it's not personal edification, but congregational, or personal demonstration, but congregational edification. Now Paul's going to move to some principles that he is going to show us. There are at least five principles in these verses that I think we should apply as a church that comes straight from Scripture that should affect the way we worship Christ. And the first is this order is mandatory, it's not an option. It's mandatory. There should be order in a worship service. Now, does that mean you have to have a bulletin? Not necessarily, no. Uh, but there should be an orderly way in which a church conducts its worship. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Look in verse 27. He says, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three. So, so stop right there. In the church at Corinth, Paul is saying, if somebody's got a tongue to share and there are people there who don't speak the proper language, uh, two, two's fine, three's at the most. Cut it off at three's, what he's saying. But notice this, and each in turn, each in turn. Now, I know at Pentecost, the 120 all spoke at the same time. But now Paul is saying with the church, as it comes together as a body in corporate worship, it's not to be that way anymore. They're to speak one at a time, especially when it comes to using that gift of tongues. But the same is true for prophets. Look what he says about prophets in verse 30. He says, if a revelation is made to another sitting here, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy how? One by one. In other words, here's what he's saying. If someone is speaking, and in the context of the church at Corinth, God gave a, a prophecy to someone else. He would let the speaker know that he had a word. And so the speaker would then give him the floor, sit down, so that that speaker could speak so everyone could hear. So, you know, uh, it would be confusing if, if, if I was preaching and there was two or three others preaching at the same time. You wouldn't know who to listen to. You wouldn't know what was being said. And it would be somewhat confusing and somewhat chaotic. And that's what Paul is saying here. It, when it comes to the gift of tongues in Corinth, one, let each do it in their own turn. When it comes to the gift of prophecy, that's fine. But if you've got a word, just take the floor one person at a time. Because order is mandatory. It is not an option. So if I'm there and I've, you know, and I've got a tongue and somebody else has already done it, if I'm in Corinth, then what should I do? I should show restraint. Because order is mandatory. Second, clarity is imperative. What do, what do I mean by that? Well, notice what he says in verse 27 about the gift of tongues. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. In other words, Paul is saying if you've got the gift of tongues and no one's there to interpret, 
I don't care how great the message of tongues you've got is. Be quiet. Don't speak. Don't use it. Why? Because no one's going to know what in the world's being said unless someone interprets it. And we are here not for my personal gain, but I'm here to build up the body of Christ. And so are you. And Paul clarifies what he says. He says, but if there is one to interpret, let each of them keep silent. Uh, But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. In other words, he is saying, again, if no one is there to interpret, then the use of the gift of tongues speaking in different languages is out of order because people don't know what is being said. So clarity is imperative. Third, discernment is necessary. Look here what he says in verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. Now, if someone gets up and they're proclaiming the word of God, and of course in Corinth they didn't, they didn't pack in their King James or ESV Bibles to church and say, could you turn your Bible to this such and such chapter? No. Prophets were, were given the ability to, to speak God's word, and God would give revelation to them, and they would share it. Well, how do I know if what that prophet is saying in Corinth is true or not, if I don't have the gift of prophecy. He could say the Lord has said and then fill it in however, however he wants to, and I don't know if it's from God or not. Well, Paul said, here's how. There has to be two or three other prophets there, and they have to agree with what's being said, and there has to be discernment with what is being said. Now, does it work that way today? Not necessarily in the same manner, um, because Today, there is no new revelation from God. If I get up this morning and I say, God gave me a new revelation this morning, then you ought to call a business meeting at 1 o'clock, vote me out, and vote somebody else in. Because there is no new revelation from God. It ended with the last amen in Revelation twenty-two twenty-one. That's it for revelation. Okay, But at the same time, everyone here is called upon to discern everything I say. Every sermon I preach, every word I say, you should take it in, you should weigh it against Scripture, and you should see whether it is that I'm telling you the truth or whether what I'm telling you is not the truth compared to Scripture. Weigh it to Scripture. I love that idea. I love that picture. You weigh what is said according to the Word of God and see if it matches up. You have a responsibility, and I've said this for as long as I've been pastor here. If I wasn't afraid God would strike me dead, I would preach a sermon that was so doctrinally wrong just to see how many people would confront me (laughs) at the back door and say, Preacher, I don't think that was right. But again, I'm afraid God strike me dead before (laughs) before I got to the back door. So uh, I'm not going to do that. But you have to be discerning because there are many winds and there's many doctrines out there that are not from God. Be careful. Fourthly, control is essential. Notice what he says here in verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. In verse 32, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Now, what does that mean? Here's what it means. It means if I'm a prophet and God gives me a a word, a revelation, and I want to share it, but it's out of order, Paul says, don't share it. Don't share it. And you don't have the cop out to say, well, this is from God, so um, he just took over, and I didn't really know what I was doing, didn't really know what I was saying, uh, and, and uh, it, th- this is God. 
It's not me. Paul's saying, no, it doesn't work that way. Because when God gives you the gift, he also subjects that gift to you. You are in control of using, or not using, I should put, not using that gift when it is not done in an orderly manner. Um, and listen, it's not even, it's not quenching the spirit to do that. You know, you hear people all the time, oh, don't quench the spirit. Listen, you read Ephesians where Paul says don't quench the spirit and 1 Thessalonians where he says don't quench the spirit. It's not talking about in a worship service. It's talking about in your life. And here's the thing. I think if we were as concerned about quenching the spirit in our daily life as we are in a worship service, there would be much less quenching of the spirit in the worship service because he would be quenched much less in our daily activities and in our daily lives. No, he's saying control it. Be in control. Don't lose control. Does God ever lose control? Never. And we should strive for that even though we do lose control from time to time. And then fifthly, Paul reminds us that God is revealed. Look what he says in verse 33. For, that is a purpose. Here's why you need to take these steps and understand these things. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, if or if the worship is orderly, if the words spoken are clear, if discernment is taking place, and if people are under control, then Paul is saying that is an orderly worship service. Now, does that mean you can't raise your hand, you can't say amen, you can't praise the Lord and enjoy the Lord, say hallelujah, clap your hand? No, not at all. But he is saying that you have to have spiritual principles in place in order to keep order in a worship service because, here's why. Unbelievers especially will get their view of God based on what they see in your worship. All right, let's imagine somebody comes in here, they haven't been to church much, they walk in here, um, and uh, say everybody looks like they've eaten persimmons and their best friend died this morning when they come in and, and they sing, oh, how I love Jesus, like they've got a 5,000 ton brick on their back. You know what that unbeliever is going to think about God? He's the biggest killjoy in the world. You know why? Because that's what we have reflected in our worship. But when we come in and we're singing and we're rejoicing and, and, and we smile every once in a while and, and people look at that, you know what they'll say? Hey, there's a happy God. <laughs> Worshiping God makes them happy. So, so they connect the dots. Then God must be a joyous God, a God who fills his people with joy. Now, in the context of Corinth, if they walked in here and it looked like a sixth-grade paperwad fight in the middle of the church service, what would they say about God? He's chaotic. He's confusing. That place is crazy. I'm not going there. But if we worship God in a, in a lively but yet an orderly manner, people will get the idea that God is indeed a God of order. And so Paul says there are principles to worship, but we must show Restraint. Showing restraint is not quenching the spirit. Secondly, and this is the passage where angels fear to tread, Paul says show respect. Now, listen, ladies, I love you. My mama's a lady. I married a lady. I got three ladies, uh, three daughters in my house. So I am not chauvinistic at all. And neither was Paul. Because verse 33 through 35, Paul is addressing a particular problem that's going on in the church at Corinth. And he says, as it is in all the churches of the saints, 
The women should keep silent in church. Ladies, let me ask you something. How many of you sang this morning? Uh-oh. Did we violate this? I mean, when we, when we started service, uh, any of you other than Donna, amen. I heard Donna, amen, a few times. <laughs> Maybe. I hope so. Is that in violation of this? Uh, have you... Have you um, have you whispered something underneath your breath while church was going on? Or have you said, thank you, Lord, while church was going on? You've spoken during the worship service. Have you violated this passage of Scripture? I would say no. Not at all. Because, again, remember what I always say? A text without a context is a subtext for a proof text. In other words, what I mean by that is this. If you don't take Scripture in its proper context, you can rip it out and you can make it mean anything that you want it to mean in your own thinking and in your own mind. But keep in mind the context, the confusion that's going on. And Paul is speaking particularly here about the operation of prophecy, the proclamation of the Word of God in the church service. And so here's what is going on in Corinth. While the Word of God is being proclaimed, women who have a newfound Liberty in Christ that they did not know before. Which, by the way, that's what the gospel gives. The gospel elevated the status of women in society. Paul would say, for in Christ, we're neither male nor female, or we're neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. He elevates us to that glorious status regardless of gender, regardless of nationality. We are one in Christ. But some of the ladies at Corinth had taken that to the extreme to where now when someone was preaching, they were disrupting the church. They were causing problems in the church. And what were they causing problems with? They were just blurting out in the middle of the church service questions or, or they, were, they were challenging what was being preached and what was being said. And Paul said, this is wrong for, this is wrong for a few reasons. He says, well, one, it's not orderly in the context of the passage. But two, he says it's shameful to their husbands for them to behave this way. And that's why he says in verse 35, if there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And the word speak there, some believe the context of it means to speak in this manner in church. In other words, don't publicly just blurt out questions during the preaching of the word of God. But you should first ask it privately. Ladies, you should first ask your husbands. Which, guys, for us, it means that we have the responsibility to have an answer for them. Which means we need to be students of the Word of God as well. That responsibility falls to us. Um, if you do have a question about something I preach, you can ask me in private. Um, unless, unless it's something that's just so chaotic and off the wall and wrong then the elders, Brother Brian and Brother Justin, had the responsibility to set me down and, and, and straighten it out immediately at the point. But, but, but you do not disrupt the service because it's disrespectful. And so that's what Paul is saying here to the ladies. He's not telling you don't speak. He's not telling you don't have prayer requests. He's not even, he's not even telling you not, not to pray because back in chapter 11, he speaks of a woman praying in a worship service. And he seems to be fine with that. But he's talking about here in a disruptive manner. Don't disrupt because it's disrespectful. So, so in an orderly worship service, show respect. Now, landed that plane pretty smoothly, didn't I? So, so, some of you were dreading that before we got to it. Uh, but then thirdly and finally, 
Paul tells us this, to avoid rebellion. All right, in the midst of a worship service, we should avoid rebellion. And here's where the pages drip with sarcasm. Paul begins in verse 36, and he says, Or was it from you that the word of God came? In other words, oh, I'm sorry, Corinth, I forgot. God gave his word through you to the rest of the world, didn't he? How'd that slip my mind? <laughs> or are you the only ones it has reached? Paul said, oh, I, 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 maybe the word of God didn't originate with you, but you're the only people in the world God gave it to. How in the world could I be so blind to this truth is basically what he's saying. And by the way, Paul sometimes could be a smart aleck. Verse 37, he says, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. Now he says, all right, now let's, I've made my point, I've made my point, tongue-in-cheek comment towards you. But I want you to know this, that what I'm writing to you, it is the command from the, from the Lord. And if you are as spiritual as you say you are, if you are as holy as you say you are, if you are as in tune to the Holy Spirit as you say you are, then you've got to acknowledge something, that what I'm writing to you, they are commands from the Lord. And if we learn anything from 1 Corinthians 14 with all the confusion over tongues and order and chaos and church, here's what we must acknowledge that our worship must be devoted to God's word. Do you know during the Reformation, before the Reformation took place, do you know where pulpits sat in churches? Sat over to the side. And they didn't even preach for hundreds of years in the churches. They would have a little homily that they would read whenever they would, whenever they would have church. One of the hallmarks of the Reformation was that the pulpit was moved from over to the side, which was an, a, a visual illustration of what the church at Rome had done to the Word of God. They just shoved it to the side and, and, and removed it and replaced it with, with uh, tradition and with the Pope. But Calvin and Luther and the Reformers said, no, if there is going to be Reformation, then that reformation will only come when the word of God is in its proper place in our hearts and in our churches. And they move the pulpits from the side back to the center part of the church. So all eyes are on the pulpit. All eyes are on the word of God. And listen to me. It doesn't matter what songs a church sings. It doesn't matter what order a church has. It doesn't matter in the particular um, manner as far as the order goes that the church worships in if the word of God is not center in the church service from beginning to end then the church worship is a farce it is wrong and so here's my challenge to us as we worship God my challenge is that we will acknowledge the authority of God's word and what I mean by that notice what Paul says Paul says, if anyone, in verse 38, does not recognize this, he is not recognized. What does that mean? Paul is saying, if you don't recognize what I'm writing to you as the word of God, then you're not going to be recognized. You're a rebel. Can I, give me just three minutes to say this, maybe two. This is a beautiful passage when it comes to the inspiration of all Scripture. The Bible says that all scriptures given by inspiration of God, all scriptures breathed out by God. Paul doesn't say this is the command of Paul. He says it's the command of the Lord. Meaning that though Paul wrote it, it is indeed the word of God. And do you know what? 1 Corinthians chapter 14 bears just as much weight as Matthew chapter 5 with all the red letters in it. 
we dare not pit Paul against Peter, against Jude, against John, against Jesus, against Isaiah, against Habakkuk, against anybody. You know why? Because from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, it all has the same authority and it is all the word of Almighty God. You hear it all the time in America uh, today. Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. And my response is, yeah, he did. Romans 1. You say, well, that's Paul. That's not Jesus. And I say, then you don't belong in this debate because we clearly see Scripture as from different vantage points. You see, it isn't Paul's word in Romans 1. It's God's word written by the hand of Paul. Can I confess something to you? Don't kick me out. <laughs> I'm not a fan of red-letter Bibles. I, I, mine's red-letter, and I'm not a fan of it. You know why? Because red-letter Bibles have the tendency to make us elevate the red words above all the black words. They really do. Now, I, I, it's fine. You, you like to, I like to envision what Jesus' voice may have sounded like whenever he said what he said. Let me tell you something. Don't elevate the red words to the point that you, you, you deflate the black words because they are just as inspired and authoritative as the red ones are. And so we must acknowledge the authority of the word of God. And secondly, we must obey the commands in God's word. Paul says, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. In other words, what he says is, if you do it in an orderly manner the way prescribed in 1 Corinthians 14, I don't have any problem with it. Don't have any problem with it. But if you do it any other way, don't do it. But all things should be done decently and in order. Final command, all things should be done decently and in order. MacArthur says, if you don't write scripture, then obey it. <laughs> and no one has the right to overrule, ignore, alter, or disobey the word of God. And to do so is to put himself above the word of God. Let me ask you something. Why does worship matter? I mean, we've been talking about worship for two weeks. Why does it even matter in the grand scheme of things? You know why worship matters? Worship matters because the heart of man's problem is that he worships the wrong thing. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 that our great sin is that when we knew God, we did not honor him as God, and we were not thankful, but we became futile in our imaginations. Our foolish heart was dark, and professing ourselves to be wise, we became fools and exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God into an image like to man and four-footed beast and creeping things. You know what, the, you know what the, the heart of man's great problem is? The heart of man's great problem is he worships the wrong thing. If you don't worship God, you're worshiping something. You're either worshiping money, worshiping sex, worshiping the American dream, worshiping a vehicle, worshiping a job, worshiping a child, worshiping a, a, a parent. You're worshiping something. Everybody worships something. You're worshiping yourself. And the very heart of sin is that we have traded God to worship something that is less than God. And thus, God says himself, Jesus said himself in John 4, that the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers are going to worship God in spirit and in truth. And the Father seeks such to worship him. You know what's so glorious about conversion? About a sinner coming to faith in Christ? 
What's so glorious is that a new worshiper is born into the kingdom of God. That person who a few moments earlier worshiped something, the created more than the creator, at that moment when God changes his heart and through faith in Jesus Christ alone, that person then becomes a worshiper of Jesus. That's what the Great Commission is all about. It's about turning pagans into worshipers. That's why Christians should be concerned about it because we believe our God deserves the praise and the worship of all peoples on the planet. He deserves yours. He deserves mine. And worship matters because God deserves worship. You know what we're going to do throughout all of eternity? We're going to do what Brother Mike read in Revelation 5. We are going to worship God forever. We are going to sing a new song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and power and might for you were slain and you've redeemed us to God out of every kindred, every tongue, every people, and every nation. Beloved, if you don't like worship, you won't like heaven. <laughs> Because we are going to worship him forever and ever and ever. And I ask you this. Who or what are you worshiping today? Who or what has the number one place in your heart today? If it's not God, then the Bible calls that idolatry. And if you have never confessed and professed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior... You are worshiping someone or something other than God. And what you're saying to God is this is greater than you. Because it has my devotion and you do not. But the good news of the gospel is this. Through faith in Jesus Christ and faith alone, not in any works that you've done. If you will believe the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins and he was buried and he was raised again the third day. If you will trust in Christ for your salvation then today you can leave here saying what Paul said, the unbelievers said in 1 Corinthians 14. Truly, God is in the midst and you can fall on your face and you can worship God because only the gospel can turn rebels into worshipers. Let's pray.